We've been uh, looking lately at a series on imitating God and on uh, following what he does. Imitating is a funny word, isn't it? So a lot of times we think of that word imitating in a negative sense. For instance, all our lovely kids that just went out, if they are in the back seat, at some point someone's probably going to imitate somebody else and it will make a big problem. Stop copying me! And you hear it, you know, we've all, we've all we've been there. We all know what that's about. And so uh, God tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to imitate him, be imitators of God, and to copy him and do what he does. But this idea of imitating God is not just physically do things he does and try, like in the backseat of the car, to copy somebody to annoy them. It's not like that. It's taking the very character of Christ, the character of God, and displaying that and living that through the fruit of the Spirit in what God has called us to do. So imitating God is not a physical trait thing. Thanks be to the Lord, because um, I don't know that I'm fit enough. Uh, Maybe I'm too tall. You know, you can be too tall for some jobs. Did you know that? Learned that. You can be too tall. You can be too short. You can be too whatever. And so God's not talking about imitating him in terms of things that are in the outward appearance. But he's talking about imitating him where the character of God that he has changed us to be like him comes out of us now in an outward way, and we are like him in what we do. Jesus said that we should do uh, these things in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 when he's talking about the blessed are these different people. If you recall, it talks about being blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, how is being poor in spirit like being God? That doesn't doesn't jive exactly. But the idea here is it's not just, it's not the labels that are put on us. It's the heart attitude that we have because even Jesus was dependent on the Father. And so you can be poor in spirit, dependent on God and exuding and imitating him in everything that you do. Today we're going to talk about one of these qualities that Jesus talks about, a way that we can imitate God. And we're going to talk about the quality of meekness. And this quality of meekness is often misunderstood because it's something that is not often discussed. It's a weird kind of word. We don't use it a lot. Where do you hear the word meek most of the time? Have you ever heard it? Church, right? You never hear it outside church. Because nobody wants to be meek. Meek is not a quality the world likes. They don't want you to be meek. They want you to be ferocious. Ferocious in business. Ferocious in things you do. They don't want you meek. That's that's a weakness in the world's eyes. Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. For they shall inherit the earth. That's incredible. What, what, when you think of meek in church, we only usually use that a couple times. We don't even talk about meek a lot. When do you hear the word meek come up in church stuff? It's about this time of year. Jesus coming. Yeah. Meek and mild. Jesus meek and mild. Now, if Jesus is meek, That's probably a character trait that we want to exude. If we're going to imitate God and Jesus, the Lord himself, is meek, shouldn't we be people who are meek? Um, I was watching a cowboy movie the other day. I like cowboy movies sometimes. You know, they're funny because sometimes they're really slow on purpose. You ever notice that? And after a while, you're like, just get your horse to the place. Like been riding 20 minutes over the plains here, but that's kind of how it was, so that makes sense. Uh, But I was watching a cowboy movie, and they were talking about the Homestead Act that happened after the Civil War, and the Homestead Act was an act where Congress passed 
uh, a law that you could go into the westward expansion, so past Missouri and Kansas, go west, and if you went to like Wyoming or Colorado or Montana, you could make a claim on a plot of land and that was your land. Now that's a big deal because a lot of people have come, in the United States especially, there were indigenous people here, and that's a whole other discussion of taking their land, so I'm gonna say that that's real and that's a shame and that's an awful thing, but that's for the purpose of this discussion, we're not talking about that. Uh, there are indigenous people that were here, but most of the people that this, these laws applied to were immigrant people. And a lot of them came from Ireland, a lot of them came from England and European countries. There were Africans that were brought here against their will, horrible, and uh, we know about all those things. There were uh, other people that came here from Asia, and the way, the way they were treated was terrible, all these things happened. But this idea of the Homestead Act gave people an opportunity to have land that was theirs, and that's a big deal. Because anywhere you look in the world, having your own land is something that only the elite get to do. So for instance, in Africa, only the, the chiefs have the land. They own the land and they parcel it out. And then people get stuff, but the chief owns everything. Same with the kings of Europe. The kings of Europe own everything. They own all the land, and then they give it out to their feudal people who are gonna work the land for them. In, in China, everything's owned by the government. Used to be owned by the emperor, now owned by the government in communist China. So to have your own land is not a concept that they really get. And so now, coming over into this Homestead Act and in America, the point that I'm trying to make is for every people group, having your own parcel of land, especially if you were an oppressed people of whatever color, because there was a lot of oppression going on. If you were able to be freed and get your own land, that was a huge deal because it meant that you were the king of your castle. And to do that meant you had to go west and you had to brave animals and you had to brave outlaws and you had to brave the weather and it was gonna be really difficult and there's a sense in American identity that we are a people who are supposed to take what's ours and conquer and do it. And so being a cowboy in America is not just about being cool and having spurs, walking around and having a cool hat. Being a cowboy in America is this ideal in American culture that we will do it and we can make it happen and we're gonna take what we need to take and make it ours. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Is that foreign to anybody? No. So in the business world, as an American person, if you wanna get a good job today, what do you do? What do you do? You quiet quit where you are, do the very bare minimum, and then you take somebody else's job. That's what you do. Because the only way you're gonna get really promoted or get more money is to get a new job. And so either you downplay everybody else to rise yourself up, or you do the very bare minimum so you can find something else somewhere else. Everybody know what I'm talking about? This feels real uncomfortable all of a sudden. <laughs> you know why? Because this is the opposite of meek. The American ideal that's instilled in us is the opposite of meek. I'll give you an example. If you're in a restaurant with a bunch of friends and they bring out your steak, you got a steak, and it is cooked entirely wrong. In fact, it is not steak, it is fish. And they put it in front of you and they're like, that's the steak. And you're like, this is for sure a piece of fish, right? If you decide to eat the fish in front of your friends, are they gonna have a problem with that? 
Yes, they're going to have a problem with that. Now imagine you're at a business dinner. You're at a business dinner. Fish gets brought out. Are you going to act weak in front of everybody? Or are you going to make a little scene? You're going to make a little scene. Now, you don't have to be disrespectful, but you're going to make sure people know that you're not a weak person. Because we don't want to be weak in any way. And a lot of times, we associate in our minds this idea of being meek, M-E-E-K, with being weak, W-E-A-K. And that people who are meek are weak in situations. But in fact, meekness, biblically explained, is the power to destroy that is withheld. Meekness is the power to overcome, the power to conquer, the power to destroy that is withheld. That's what meekness is. So Jesus, who is meek and mild, he's the king of glory. By his word, he created the people who he's talking to. He has the power to judge and destroy them. He has the power at any moment to ask the Father, and legions of angels will come to his aid. He is the God who directed the stone that killed Goliath. He is the God who judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He is the God who in his judgment over sin brought a flood that destroyed the earth and he saved Noah. He is the God who created the very people that he's talking to. And yet in his meekness, he speaks to them like a person. How incredible is that? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is the ability to overcome with help. We're going to read a story, and it's a really weird story to read at Thanksgiving time, but there's a purpose for it. In Exodus chapter 32, this is the story of the golden calf. The people have just come out of Egypt. God has saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They've come out, and do you know where they're headed? To take a land. They're going to get their own land. They've gone from an oppressed people in slavery to a people who are going to inherit a part of the earth that will be their part of the earth. This place that 400 years before was promised to their forefather. And in an incredible moment, they are going to be able to go into the land and they have witnessed God delivering them because they were a people who had no power to save themselves. They were not mighty in arms. They were not mighty in numbers, although there were a lot of them. They were not mighty in education. They were an oppressed people. But God comes, and he sends this guy Moses. And Moses shows up, and you've seen the movies, right? Comes into Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And God said, let the people go that they may go into the wilderness and worship. And Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, not only the king, but revered as their god, says, no, I will not let them go. And you know the story of how God delivers the people. Is it, is it nice and, and tidy and kind? No. It's rough. It looks like darkness. It looks like plagues. It looks like locusts. It looks like death. It looks like terror. It looks like the people crying out to Pharaoh, the Egyptian people crying out to Pharaoh, send these people away from us because we will all die. It looks like the people who had enslaved the Israelites, giving them gifts of gold and silver to try to appease the God who is bringing judgment upon the nation. And so the Israelites leave in mass and they leave rich. 
with the very earrings that the people were wearing. How incredible. And now they've left and they're going into the Sinai or going out into the wilderness and they come up against the Red Sea and what does God do? He sends darkness upon the Egyptians while he removes all the water from the Red Sea so that the people of Israel can go across. Yeah, amazing. Then they go across and the Egyptians try to follow them with their army and are engulfed in the water. And it's terrifying. Now they've wandered in the wilderness and they have no food. And God mysteriously, miraculously causes food to fall from the sky. And it's sweet like baked honey loaves. And they eat it and it's amazing. And then they get to this mountain and God tells them, don't come up the mountain because I'm here. And you've seen what I can do. And I'm going to form you into a people. And when I do that, I'm going to bring Moses, the one who I sent to bring you out. He's going to come up to me and I'm going to talk to him. And then he will give you everything that you need to know. In fact, God speaks to the people and they're so terrified by God's voice and so terrified by the display of glory that they see that the people withdraw and beg Moses to go and be their mediator so they don't have to listen to God's voice because it's so scary to them. Wow. That doesn't sound meek at all, does it? So Moses goes up in the mountain, and he's there over a month meeting with God. And God is telling him about laws. And in fact, God, with his own hand, if you will, writes on tablets of stone what the Ten Commandments will be, how he wants his people to be. Because remember, they're culturally Egyptian. And God's changing their culture to now be his people. So he gives them these laws, and then he tells Moses something that's really scary. Let's read together. In verse 32, God tells Moses that the people have already rebelled. Verse 32 says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who is the priest, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of, out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Exodus 32, verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be the feast to the Lord. That's the Lord's name, by the way. When it's all capitalized that. He means to Yahweh, to God, the God that has delivered them. Verse 9, or verse 6, excuse me. Then they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So in other words, verse 10, the Lord says, I'm going to wipe these people out 
the same way I wiped the Egyptians out because they rebelled against me. And I'll start over with you to make a new nation. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore to yourself, by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Moses comes down the mountain, and when he comes down the mountain, he has a servant Joshua with him, and Joshua mistakenly cries out, hearing the festival that's happening. He says, I hear the sound of war. And Moses says, no, it's not war, it's singing. And they come down the mountain, and they find the people who have, as the word told us, rose up to play. And they're in a festival, and they have the golden calf there. And Moses, his anger, it says, burns hot. And he takes the stone tablets of the law that God had written, and he throws them down, and they crumble in front of the people, breaking it on the ground. And then he takes the golden calf, and he, he smashes it, burns it into powder, and then he puts that powder in the drinking water, and he makes all the people drink it. Yuck. And then, now imagine, too, this, there's many Israelites. There's like a, a million-plus Israelites. There's a lot of people. So sometimes we think of it like this room and the scene is small because of what we see in the movies. But the reality is it's a very large group of people. And God brings judgment on the people. Some people refuse to obey God, and it's not pleasant what happens. Then God even brings a plague on the people to discipline them. But he doesn't consume them and destroy them. Now, why have we read this? Why have we read this passage? It's a weird passage for Thanksgiving, isn't it? I mean, it really is. Here's why we read this, because the inclination of every person and the inclination of every American is that when you get around people and they question you about something, you defend your power. You defend your land, you defend your honor, you defend yourself, and you defend it with vigor. And you do that because the cowboy in you, or the cowgirl in you, has taught you that it's better to fight and lose than it is to be weak. It's better to fight and lose than it is to be weak. Especially if injustice happens to you or somebody says something to you that's not true, it's better to fight and defend your honor even if you get hurt. And it doesn't matter the effects of what happens. So in America, if something happens, people are quick to fist fight. They don't realize they're gonna go to jail. And then in jail, every time, I say this as a former police officer. They sit there saying, why, what, 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 what do I do? So you punch the guy's teeth out. <laughs> he called me a jerk. You punch the guy's teeth out. And that, it's the American cowboy mentality. And I'm telling you, it's in us. It's in our culture. It's in us because what happens is we gather around for Thanksgiving, and you start having the conversations. And last week, we talked about being a peacemaker and what all those conversations look like and how to bring people to Jesus. This week, we're taking that one step further to say, let's be meek like Jesus is meek. And rather than allowing the temptation that's in us to defend ourselves, 
come up and start to fight? What if we're meek? And what if we learn how to be like Jesus? And what does that really look like? And so we're reading a story here about Moses because Moses, the Bible tells us, was the meekest man other than Jesus who ever lived. The Bible describes him in the book of Numbers as the the meekest man who ever lived. And in this exchange, notice he's burning hot. He's angry. He's grinding up, up gold into people's drinking water and making them drink it. It doesn't mean that he doesn't do things. But why would the Bible describe him as the meekest man who ever lived? You know, this is an interesting passage because oftentimes it's not only misunderstood, but it's mistaught. Because a lot of times people think that the way that Moses prayed shows us that we can change God's mind. Now, if God is the author of history, prayer is powerful and effective, don't get me wrong. But this passage is interesting in the interplay between what God expects of people when we pray and how he decides to do things. Can one person change God's mind about something? No and yes. No and yes. Because in this, yes. Because in the, what happens here? God says, leave me alone. I'm going to consume the people I'll start with you. What does Moses do? What does he do? He intercedes for the people and prays. What does, he, what does he pray? Verse 11. It says, He implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot? And he asked the Lord, Remember, remember your reputation, God, of what you've done for this people. You know that they're a crazy people. You know that they're stupid because sin makes you stupid. I'm just using that word. I know that's a mean word. Sin makes you crazy. And they're crazy. And Moses is saying, Lord, forgive them. Lord, don't just let your name be thrown about by all the people who saw you deliver them. And what I see here is not so much that Moses is actually changing God's mind, but God has changed Moses' heart. And the change that we see here is not so much in God changing what he's about to do, so much as we see a change that has occurred in Moses over a long time. This is the Moses that when he was born as a baby was supposed to be slaughtered and instead his mother put him in a basket to save his life. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. He grew up as a prince of Egypt learning all the governmental things that were happening. And as a young man, he saw knowing that he was an Israelite. He saw his Israelite brothers being oppressed by one of the taskmasters. And so he goes out and he kills that Egyptian guy trying to deliver his brothers. And they turn on him and say, we know what happened. We saw what you did. And so he flees to the wilderness to escape this burden that he feels to try to do something for his people and escape his place in Egypt and escape everything. He grew up as a rich guy in the palace. And instead, he goes out to be a herder. He goes way out in the wilderness, and he meets God there. And God comes to him. You know the story from Sunday school in a burning bush. And the, the Lord says, this is holy ground that you're standing on. Remove your shoes. He takes off his shoes. He says, Lord, what is this thing that you're doing? And God says, I am sending you to Egypt that you will deliver my people. Now, here's the incredible thing. What is the first thing that Moses says? Send somebody else. I can't talk. I'm no good. What am I supposed to do? I can't do this. What do you I I don't know what you're talking about. I, uh, what, okay, I'll, where can I run? And then God sends him. 
And God equips him with people. The same people that make the golden calf. The same people that mess up. And he goes and stands in front of Pharaoh and says the word of God. Then the people leave Egypt and it's incredible and God's done this great majestic and horrifying work of the plagues. They're miracles, but they're not the kind of miracles that we want to see. And so now the people depart, and this is the day where they're going from oppression to go to the land that God has called them. It's the day where they're finding not just freedom, but a place in the earth. How incredible. And they get going, and it's women and children, and they're not warriors. And then they look behind them, and they see the army of Egypt, the greatest military might in this time in history, pursuing them to destroy them. And what do the people say? Why has God brought us here to kill us? And here Moses stands up and says, no, you saw, you know what he's like. You know the Lord's character. He hasn't brought you here to kill you. He'll make a way. And he prays, Lord, what do I do? And the Lord says, raise your staff and I'll, I'll make the water part. And God comes and brings darkness on the Egyptians to hold them at bay while all these things happen. God saves them and he uses Moses to do it. And now Moses, for 40 days, is on a mountain speaking to God, and he's with God. And the Lord says to him, the people have rebelled. The people have rebelled. I'll just get rid of them and start over with you. And this guy who was afraid to talk to Pharaoh, this guy who was afraid to go and do what God said, this guy who's imploring God at every turn to save their lives, this guy who has seen miracle after miracle, this guy who's not sure of himself, speaks up to God Almighty and says, Lord, please don't do that. Remember what you've already said. That's a big deal. You know, I was, uh, when I was in the Army one time, way back when, I had a mission that I was supposed to do, and I was supposed to tie in with uh, this other unit, and I ended up in the office of this really high-ranking guy. And uh, we're sitting together in the office, and I was not really high-ranking. Let's be clear about that. And so uh, I'm sitting in his office, and this is the kind of guy who um, like can change politics in the world, that kind of guy. you know. And so we're sitting there talking together, and he said, I want you to go do this mission. And the mission was very dangerous, and I didn't, like, I didn't think it was good. And I remember sitting in his office and praying and saying, Lord, help me. And suddenly I had this thing come to mind, and I told him, I said, Lord, I said, sir, with respect, uh, the way that we're legally um, given to you to do this mission, I can't sign off on doing this. I'm happy to obey. I'd love to obey, but I need to, uh, I need to go through these channels first. And he goes, what? And I said, yeah, I'm a, I, I, can't, I can't. I have to because of the way that the Army has arranged things. And he looked at me like, you peon, I will crush you. And I said, sir, with respect, I understand that, but I, I, this, is, this is what I have to do. And, um, and there were two of us in the room. The other guy didn't have that out that I had. And um, they were in major jeopardy. This was a real wartime mission, and it, was, it went really poorly, which I, th I thought it would. And so uh, I went back to my command and talked to them. I said, this is the situation. This is what's going on. Here's what's going to happen. Things are probably going to go bad. And they were like, OK, one, within 24 hours, my, I had 45 guys that I was doing stuff with. My unit was replaced. This guy brought in 170 people to do my job. He kicked me out, kicked us out of the living quarters we were in, changed our mission. He changed, had the Pentagon change the, the boundaries of who had responsibility of what area because me, way down there, had found a little loophole to not do what he said. 
And he barred our entire unit, everybody that was in our unit, from being able to wear his patch, of his unit patch, which is a big deal in the, in the Army. Because I said no. Now, I said no, and my soldiers lived. Having said that, and I'm not something special, the Lord helped me because this was an impossible situation. The reason I'm telling you that situation and that story is, have you ever been in a place where you know you're talking to somebody that can literally crush you? And here's Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. He has seen Pharaoh's splendor crushed by God. And now he speaks up to say, Lord, remember your reputation? Who is this guy? This is not the same guy that met God and was told to take off his shoes. Something's happened to him. This passage is not so much about God changing his mind as much as, as it is about God's person, his representative, his character changing to think the way God thinks. Because God is faithful to his promises. And he is bringing a people who are going to inherit the land. And they are going to be a people who need to change from the way they think they should do things because they've reverted back already. Within 40 days, they reverted back to an Egyptian system of worship after meeting God himself. How crazy is that? They've got to change. They've got to be different. Their, their character has to be different. And you can see in Moses how God has instilled in him to be an imitator like himself because he prays and says the same things that God has already said in every chapter before this. And suddenly God says, how funny is it? The God of the universe goes, I'll relent. What? It's not so much that God changes his mind so much as that he's changed Moses. Here's the incredible thing. Moses is demonstrating what Christ is going to be like. Because Jesus Christ, who is the mediator, Jesus Christ, who's the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, who is the leader, who will deliver us from slavery to sin, is going to come down, God himself, as a baby. He's going to grow up and live a perfect life. And then he is going to be put in a crowd where the very people he created, the very people he gave breath, the very trees that he made, the very plants that are growing around him, he breathed into existence. That stuff is going to be used against him now. And he is going to stand in front of people who will accuse him of crimes he did not commit. And then he will stand there doing the Father's will to go to the cross for us while he listens to a crowd chant the name of a murderer and insurrectionist that they want released more than Jesus who has healed them and loved them and provided for them. He will go to the cross bearing the weight of a tree that he created. He will look into the eyes of people that he made who will drive the nails that he formed in the earth into his own hands. He will be hoisted up and he will be given bitter wine to drink. He will hear the jeers of people whose mouths were made as babies ordained to praise him Instead, reviling him, screaming at him, calling him to, if you're really Christ, if you're really the Son of God, get yourself down from the cross. And the meekest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, who at any moment could swallow the whole earth in judgment, the one who protected the Israelites, 
the one who brought darkness around the Egyptians to allow the Israelites to escape from the water, the one who parted the waters for them. He will hang on the cross until he dies for you and for me and for those people who are jeering at him in the crowd. Jesus Christ, the meekest one ever, has the power to overcome, but withholds it. He doesn't defend himself. The Bible says, like a sheep going to the slaughter, he does not open his mouth. And instead, what does he do? He prays and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And can't you hear Moses' prayer? Lord, forgive them. They don't. You know they're stiff-necked people, but be faithful to what you've called. Why would Jesus do that? Jesus does that because the mission that he has been sent to do is to redeem all the people from slavery to sin and bring them into the promise of what he has called them to, knowing him and serving him and being with him and changing them that their character would reflect him. Jesus calls out to the crowds at the Beatitudes and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And every Israelite sitting there hears, Blessed are the meek, for they are the people of promise. The ones who would come in and receive the blessing. The incredible thing is during the Beatitudes, when Jesus is speaking to the people, they're again oppressed, this time by Rome. And their heart's cry is to have their own land and a place that they'll get to be themselves and have their own country again. And Jesus turns all this on its head because he brings a new country and he puts it inside of us to be his people where he will dwell. His meekness is incredible. What does that mean for us? In Thanksgiving, it's very possible that you're going to find a lot of golden calves. We're going to find a lot of golden calves. And quite honestly, this is an important time because let's be... I'm just being really, really frank with you right now. How often do you really get together with your family? How often do you really get together with friends? How often does the relationship go deeper than just a discussion about the weather or the Cardinals or the Blues or whatever into something different? And Thanksgiving provides an opportunity for that, for real relationship. And what often happens when real relationship comes out is you find a stiff-necked people who are worshiping a golden calf instead of the king of glory. And that stiff-necked people are quick to come against you because they got a problem with the king of glory. Whether it be family or friend or whatever, are you going to be a person who is meek like Jesus, the power to overcome, but I withhold it, to ask for forgiveness, to intercede for them, to pray for them, or are we going to be a people who fight like cowboys? What does that do in families? It breaks everything apart, doesn't it? But Jesus Christ has come to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and children to their fathers, to bring relationships back together, to see restoration, to see his gospel healing come over all people. That's what God is doing. So as imitators of God, one of the very practical first things that we need to do is decide in our hearts that we are going to be a meek people not a people who are quick to defend ourselves. Now, like Moses, that doesn't mean that you don't say anything. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It means that we're not quick to defend ourselves. Sometimes it's better to be quiet and listen and then ask the Lord, what do I do? What do I say? And he will give us the words. Sometimes it's better to take the route of trusting God that he will defend us 
instead of being cowboys that are quick to throw punches. I'm not talking about literal punches. You with me? You hear what I'm saying? Why is this so urgent? Why am I doing this now? Because quite honestly, it would be so much better just to have a really happy Thanksgiving message. I'm saying that because the world's heart is at stake. The world's heart is at stake. And oftentimes we're praying, Lord, give us an opportunity. Lord, when can I see this, this growth come? Lord, when will I see my family turn? Lord, when, when will I be able to talk into these things? What will that look like? And I'm telling you, Thanksgiving is an opportunity. Because we're together and it's deeper than just talking about sports. And so in this opportunity as we come, are we going to be imitators of God and follow him and do what he says? Or are we going to just let the status quo continue? One way that we can do that, and there are many to do it, is let's let the meekness of God come out of us. Where we trust him, we look to him, that he will defend us. And we're not there looking for a fight, but instead we're looking for intercession. We're looking for grace. We're looking for forgiveness. We're looking for mercy. We're looking for Jesus in everything we do. How do you do that? Uh, don't pray a prayer right away over the Thanksgiving meal that you know is going to get at everybody. Oh, Lord, thank you for this meal. And then you pray all the things that you want to say to everybody. You're not being meek. See what I'm saying? How do we do this practically? Just be yourself and trust the Lord that he's going to show up. Be yourself and trust the Lord that he's going to speak through you. Be yourself and let his character come through you first so that you can get to those conversations that you need to have. Because if we offend people in the first 10 minutes of the meeting, first 10 minutes of the meal, you're never going to get to those discussions. See what I mean? Let's let the meekness of God come out of us. Will you all stand? I'm going to pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Father, we thank you that you are good. Lord, thank you for the example of Moses. And Lord, thank you especially that you sent your son. That he would die for us. That, Lord, by his blood we were made your people. Lord, by his resurrection we're given life. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, help us, Lord, to imitate you. To be a meek people. Not a people who are quick to fight like cowboys and cowgirls. But instead, Lord, looking to your inheritance. Lord, we want to be people of the promise, people who are after what you're after. And Lord, this Thanksgiving, we see that you are after restoration. And so, Lord, we look to you. Help us, God. Help us to be a meek people who are quick with your gospel. Not to defend ourselves, but instead to speak of Christ. Lord, not to try to uh, jab at people, but instead to, to listen and to be quick with words of wisdom that will come from you. Because, Lord, we're dependent on you. Lord, we look to you, God, change our character that we would reflect you in every way. So that, Lord, as we have these conversations, as we get time with family and friends, Lord, let it be profitable and deep and not just surface. Lord, we ask you, God, that you would bring a harvest through your gospel of people that you're calling to yourself and restored relationships and restored lives because, Father, we want to see you glorified in everything that we do. And so, Lord, I pray a blessing on every person here that they would know your peace this Thanksgiving. That, Lord, the meals and the times and the preparation and the family and the everything and the conversation would be by your spirit. Lord, be filled and led by you. Lord, I pray, God, for opportunities for your gospel. Lord, I pray, Father, when things go sideways, as they sometimes do in those meals, that, Lord, you will give us grace to be meek, to follow you, and to speak your word. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you that you're a good king. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have an excellent Thanksgiving. It's great to see you all. Have a great week.